Hi, I'm Catherine. I'm Ellen. I'm Priyanka. And welcome, welcome to Scrubbed In. In. So, welcome everyone. We today are talking about the four pillars of ethics in the NHS. Woo. Um, obviously, this is a really, really important um, subject because mm-hmm. um, it could come up in interviews and... It's also it's just true. really important for integral, really. Yeah. Oh yeah, true. For and you the, to remember as a healthcare practitioner. Yeah. <laughs> but also in your UCAT for situational judgment, it's very mm. vital in it how is. you answer those questions. So, Ellen, would you like to introduce our first pillar to our listeners? Right. So, the first pillar I'm going to be talking about would be autonomy. So, according to the British Medical Association, or BMA, autonomy is the right of competent adults to make informed decisions about their own medical care. The principle underlies the requirement to seek the consent or informed agreement of the patient before any investigation or treatment takes place. Um, So, the law states that an adult patient who suffers from no mental incapacity Incapacity. Incapacity. Incapacity has um, an absolute Uh right to choose whether to consent to medical treatment. The right of this choice, so when it says that, it Mm -hmm. means that this adult needs to be um, fully aware of all the decisions that they make, so they need to be fully capable Mm -hmm. um, of, you know, just generally living life. Mm -hmm. Um, They need to have the capacity to understand what um, is being said to them. And um, this... Um, right of choice isn't limited to decisions which others might regard as sensible so even Mm. if like it might not be the decision that the doctor would recommend um they have to follow the wishes of their patient so Mm. even if it's not advisable basically right so in terms of how autonomy is upheld and respected in patient care within the nhs Mm. before any treatments or procedures Healthcare professionals are required to provide patients with the relevant information about the proposed intervention. Mm-hmm. So this includes the nature of the treatment, the potential risks and the <coughs> benefits, and what alternative options they might have. Patients have the right to ask questions, seek clarification, and make decisions based on their understanding of the information provided. So the NHS encourages shared decision making where healthcare professionals and patients will collaborate to make decisions about treatment plans. So this will of course involve discussing treatment options, considering patients' values and preferences and reaching a decision together preferably. So this means that the patient, like it's kind of a best of both worlds situation. So the patient kind of gets what their treatment on their terms and then the doctor can um, maintain like their role in making sure that the patient gets all the treatment that they need. Yeah, facilitator. Um, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so then patients are also encouraged to engage in advanced care planning. So this means mm-hmm. that in the event that they will be in a place where they can't make decisions for themselves, um, they should express their preferences um, for future care. So often this means um, palliative and end-of-life care, but it could also be other situations, like um, in some cases childbirth. um, The um, mother may not always be able to voice their um, needs and their requirements, so Mm. it is um, often advised that they um, get together with their primary care physician and they speak about what they would want during childbirth. So... Um, that could be in terms of epidurals mm-hmm. and things mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. So yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in order for patients to make informed decisions about their health, um, they're provided with educational resources and information. So this includes the doctors explaining their medical conditions, their treatment options, and any potential outcomes in a way that is understandable to the patient. And if they do refuse a particular treatment, then their decision is generally respected, um, provided they have the capacity to make such decisions. And healthcare professionals should explore the reasons behind the refusal and, if necessary, should discuss alternative options. Yeah, so respecting patient autonomy also involves maintaining confidentiality, which is a key part of being a healthcare practitioner. So patients have the right to keep their medical information private and healthcare professionals are obligated to protect this information from unauthorised disclosure. I mean, we can see this a lot. Um, yeah. in like have you noticed in a lot of like UCAT questions mm-hmm. it's yeah. quite early for this but in a <laughs> yeah. lot of UCAT questions um, for situational judgement and decision making mm. um, I've noticed that um, when it comes to um, like uh, protecting like confidentiality and just privacy mm-hmm. that comes first in a lot of yeah, um, cases so like it's very important yeah so yeah. um the doctor or like the medical professional can't like speak about a case mm-hmm. in front of anyone so mm-hmm. even on the phone yeah um so even if you're not necessarily using names and um, if it's identifiable yeah exactly it yeah. Be, it's like it's a really yeah. really not um, a good thing yeah and this also goes with the patient's families um mm-hmm. they can't know um, until yeah. the, the patient gives informed consent. Yeah. yeah. Mm, so patients have the right to an advocate if they wish, and healthcare professionals may involve patient advocates or representatives to ensure that the patient's preferences and autonomy are respected. So this could potentially include like a translator, I presume, who's in like not interested but based in the healthcare yeah, of course. Uh, field. So in real life scenarios, um, autonomy plays a crucial role in the context of mental health, for example. So in this case, it would mean involving patients in decisions about their treatment plans. So this includes discussing medication options, therapy approaches, and involving the patients in decisions related to hospitalisation or other interventions. Mm -hmm. And I feel Mm -hmm. like one that's not um, considered very often is... um, participants in medical trials or um uh, research uh-huh. because informed consent becomes a like a really crucial act of respecting the person's autonomy mm. so um the participants should be fully informed about the nature of the study the risks the benefits like why they're doing it mm-hmm. what they're doing yeah. and they have um to have all of that information to be able to make a like good and informed decision about whether or not they want to participate yeah uh on the other side of that spectrum something that will affect more often than not most cases within medicine Mm -hmm. is autonomy in the context of cultural and religious beliefs of patients so healthcare professionals should definitely respect and consider these beliefs when developing treatment plans and making medical decisions and definitely listening to their patients in terms of what they believe to be best for themselves. Yeah. Okay, so Catherine, what are our next two pillars? Yeah, so our next two are beneficence and non-maleficence. So they're very significant in healthcare. 
And beneficence is the ethical principle that emphasises the promotion of well-being and the provision of benefits to others. So healthcare providers and other individuals in positions of care have a moral obligation to act in ways that contribute to the welfare and improvement of the individuals they serve. So this principle encourages actions that maximise the overall good, enhance the quality of life and fulfil the best interests of the individuals involved. Whereas um, non-maleficence, which is another pillar, is um, a principle that emphasises the duty to do no harm and to prevent or minimise harm to others. So healthcare providers and decision makers must actively avoid causing harm or negative outcomes to patients or individuals under their care. And it guides professionals to weigh the potential risks and benefits of any intervention, striving to minimise harm while maximising the benefits. Yeah, I mean, these are quite similar in the sense that... Two sides um, of one coin. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. you want the best for your patient, mm-hmm. but they are different in yeah. that one is promoting, like, um, doing you the best. Im- yeah, yeah, so you improve the patient's life. So, like, a treatment plan. Yeah, oh. compared to how it is currently. Mm-hmm. And non maleficence is just making sure that you don't decrease their quality of life from yeah. how it is already. So, kind of like beneficence reminds me of the concept of utilitarianism doing the best mm, yeah. for a group of per- people over the one, but kind of put that to one person <laughs> in terms of different treatment yeah, plans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, healthcare professionals often face complex ethical dilemmas when um, trying to balance the duty to provide benefits while minimising harm. So we have already kind of talked about this. Mm. Um, But striking the right balance requires such careful consideration of so many factors. So this includes the patient's values, preferences, and like the context of what's happening. Um, So one main way that healthcare professionals can really um, like help this to happen is just by communicating effectively with their patients. Mm. So they need to um, make sure that their patient understands the benefits and risks of the proposed treatment or intervention and um, kind of going along with that shared decision making make sure that um, the patient has enough information um, and that the patient is also involved in the decision making process so they feel in control um, yeah. in what's happening to them so their values and their preferences are taken into account when deciding what's going to happen to their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, another thing that they'll often do is thorough evaluation. So healthcare professionals conduct a comprehensive assessment, usually definitely mentally, but usually also typed up mm-hmm. and written up because it's important to keep document of what they're thinking and doing, of potential benefits and risks associated to a particular intervention or course of treatment. So they'll do evidence-based practice as well. So they'll rely on evidence-based practices to evaluate the likelihood of success and potential adverse effects. So usually represented as a percentage, <coughs> aiming to choose interventions with the best overall outcome to I the feel patient. Like mm-hmm. Evidence also um, can reassure the patient. Oh, definitely. They yeah. know what they're getting into, and they mm-hmm. know that there is like past experience of it working yeah yeah Yeah. okay so so, uh um, they also have to adhere to ethical codes so healthcare professionals adhere to ethical guidelines and standards set by professional organizations for example the general medical council and these codes often emphasize the importance of beneficence and non-maleficence um and there's also ethics committees 
So in complex cases, healthcare institutions may have ethics committees that provide guidance on challenging ethical issues. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll get into this in later episodes as well. Definitely. <laughs> um, and healthcare professionals consider the cultural, religious and social beliefs of the patient when determining appropriate care. So this helps in tailoring interventions to align with the patient's own own values. Yes. Mm -hmm. So respecting autonomy, as we touched upon earlier, is definitely a crucial aspect of beneficence. And as in general, the four pillars will definitely intertwine with each other. So healthcare professionals recognise and respect the patient's right to make their own decisions on their own care. And this will also lead into dynamic dynamic decision making. So healthcare situations will involve and professionals must continuously monitor and reassess the benefits and risks throughout the course of treatment. So if something's looking like it might take a turn for the worst, it would definitely be in the patient's best interest to keep them off of the treatment plan and reassess what they're doing. So healthcare professionals, obviously, individually, they won't know absolutely everything. Like, they are humans as well. Mm -hmm. They're just doing their best. So um, peer consultation becomes really, really useful. Mm -hmm. um, As if people collaborate, there is such a high likelihood that um, the outcome will be a lot better Mm because there'll be different ideas. Multiple minds. um, Exactly. The people. um, (laughs) So if there are multiple ideas, then, you know, something will click eventually um so this is especially useful in complex cases yeah um where balancing um beneficence beneficence thank you (laughs) beneficence and non-maleficence is quite Mm -hmm. difficult um because it's kind of hard to know what will improve Mm -hmm. um a patient's life what might not right so ellen would you like to set the scene for our first case study yes of course so we're going to be talking about a hypothetical involved (laughs) organ transplant allocation so a hospital has a limited number of organs available for transplantation and several patients are in need of life-saving organ transplants this applies to the case and definitely to in real life and the medical team in this hypothetical case must decide how to allocate the organs among these patients so how do these different pillars of ethics come into play in this case would you say guys right so by applying beneficence um the medical team will aim to maximize the overall benefit by considering factors such as um the severity of each patient's condition and the likelihood um that each of them will have a successful transplant and the potential for a long and healthy life post-transplant so it's applied by prioritising patients who are most likely to benefit significantly um, and taking into account factors such as their age, their overall health and the urgency of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then non-maleficence um, comes into it as well. So the medical team has to consider the principle of non-maleficence by avoiding harm in the allocation process. Mm-hmm. So this make, uh, involves ensuring that the um, allocation is fair and minimising any potential harm caused by bias and discrimination. So this is mm. quite nuanced. Yeah. Um, because but people can be discriminated against for so many reasons. Yeah. So it could be race, sexuality, mm-hmm. gender, like anything. 
So um, I think that's another reason why collaboration is really important mm-hmm. for things like this because it makes sure yeah. that um, unconscious bias exactly about. Mm-hmm. and like all the angles are being considered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this also requires transparent communication with patients and their families about the allocation criteria. So that's also um, involving like effective communication and informed consent and that kind of thing. Okay, so Catherine, would you like to introduce our second hypothetical case study? I would. So our second case study um, would be about a cancer treatment decision. Um, It's all hypothetical. (laughs) Um, So a patient with advanced cancer is considering aggressive chemotherapy, Mm. which has the potential to extend their life, but also carries significant side effects and risks. So the healthcare team must collaborate with the patient to make a treatment decision. So in this one, how would we apply the four pillars? So for beneficence, the medical team will definitely need to discuss the potential benefits of the chemo, such as the potential for tumour regression and extended life expectancy over any negative side effects. Um, Beneficence is also going to be applied by providing information about alternative treatment options, potential positive outcomes of these, and the patient's chances of experiencing an improved quality of life, which is ultimately what we're trying to go for here. Mm -hmm. And then non-maleficence. So the healthcare team needs to consider um, the potential harm associated with chemotherapy. So that includes... Um, discussing possible side effects, including nausea, fatigue, and the impact on the patient's overall well-being, um, which is a very, very real concern. Um, I had a relative who went through chemotherapy, oh. and it completely um, changed the way that they were yeah. um, in general. So they found it really difficult to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, they found it difficult to like sleep. They had a lot of nausea. Like it was, it was quite yeah. difficult. Mm-hmm. So because that is a genuine, real concern. Yeah. Um, it's like really really important to speak to the patient about that again kind of informed consent and that kind of thing so um this uh, non-maleficence ensures that Mm -hmm. the potential benefits outweigh the harm so in both cases um the professionals need to navigate the balance between um Beneficence, yeah, and non non-malefic- non maleficence. Yeah, okay, yeah. I'm saying it right. Um, <laughs> to make decisions that um, promote the well-being of the patient while minimising harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, these examples kind of highlight that. Yeah, thank you for sharing that story. By the way, that's oh, very nice of you. Okay, so our last pillar is justice. So, in the context of medical ethics, this principle is when you're weighing up if something is ethical or not. Um, We have to think about whether it's compatible with the law, the patient's rights, and if it's fair and balanced. And it also means that we must ensure no one's unfairly disadvantaged when it comes to access to healthcare. And justice is one of the reasons why the NHS has certain entitlements, such as free prescriptions for lower income individuals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Healthcare resources need to be allocated fairly and definitely equitably, touching on from what Catherine said. So medical priority is usually given to those with medical conditions that pose an immediate threat to life or quality of life. So healthcare resources are allocated based on severity and urgency of the medical need. 
evidence-based practices as well, so clinical effectiveness, utilising evidence-based practices will help us ensure healthcare interventions are effective and provide value for the resources invested because ultimately the NHS, though it is a charity, does need money in order to fund whatever medicine we're providing in these contexts. And then kind of following on from that is like cost effectiveness. So you need to make sure that um, there is like efficient use of resources. So healthcare organisations often evaluate the cost effectiveness of interventions um, Mm -hmm. considering factors such as uh, cost per quality adjusted life a year. So this approach aims to maximise health benefits relative to the sources expended. So mm-hmm. if there was a case that um, where one kind of medical intervention only helps like 20 people out of a thousand, yeah. that probably wouldn't be funded if there was an alternative that more people responded to positively mm-hmm. um, because there's just like that would just be a waste of money if not mm-hmm. many yeah. people needed it. Scarce resources. Yeah. Yeah, and there's also prioritisation protocols. Um, so, and one is called clinical decision support. So, implementing clinical decision support systems or protocols helps guide healthcare professionals in making consistent and evidence based decisions when allocating resources. Um, there's also ethical decision making frameworks, um, such as the ethics committee. Um, healthcare organisations may have ethics committees because we touched on it a bit earlier, that provide guidance on complex cases. So this helps to ensure that decisions align with ethical principles, including justice. Mm -hmm. So also other things that will be used would be public input and involvement. So in some cases involving public or stakeholders in decision-making processes that can contribute to more inclusive and acceptable resource allocation decisions, they will use communication community engagement which ensures that diverse perspectives sorry are considered and this would lead to reducing health disparities hopefully so by recognizing and addressing social determinants of health would be very essential in promoting health equity Mm -hmm. which is definitely something that we've been working on probably in history past century or so um, so allocating resources to programmes that target these determinants can help reduce these health disparities between groups. So the next um, point is continuous evaluation and adjustment. So regularly monitoring the outcomes and impact of resource allocation um, decisions allows for adjustments based on changing circumstances, um, emerging evidence and evolving healthcare needs. So um, if, for instance, an area is has like a lot of um patients who suffer with drug abuse Mm -hmm. but the Mm -hmm. like that area improves um so fewer people like need those resources then those will be um redistributed to areas yeah yeah to areas that need it it's important to note as well that we're starting to talk about a fiscal side of justice Mm. rather than just something that's based in law so justice can definitely vary in its definition when applied to the context of medicine yeah speaking of law (laughs) speaking of law (laughs) so there is um legal and regulatory framework so healthcare organizations must operate within legal frameworks that um 
include guidelines for like equitable resource allocation. So that kind of goes along with the last point. Mm-hmm. Um, so complying with these laws, just make sure that everyone gets what they need. Um, yeah. So everything's fair and it ensures accountability. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in emergency and pandemic situations, there is something called crisis planning. Mm-hmm. So this is planning for emergencies, including pandemics, um, such as COVID, obviously very topical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and it involves developing strategies for fair and efficient resource allocation during times of heightened demand and limited resources. So a nice little dis- well, discussion, a nice little pointer that I could point out following Catherine's point is that I happen to be a St John's cadet. And the other day in our St John meeting unit nights, if you want to call it that, uh, we were talking about emergency care and critical response, uh, specifically in terms of the Manchester um, bombing that Mm -hmm. happened, Mm -hmm. uh, Manchester Arena, which has caused a lot of changes to protocol as a result because of the lack of advanced planning Mm. and organisation that unfortunately happened to happen on that night which caused a lot of unnecessary casualties Mm -hmm. and potential deaths um so it's definitely something that's well integrated into St John for example when we go out onto events critical and emergency planning has to be done protocol um per event or else you can't do the event it's mandatory Mm. which is definitely the best course of action exactly there are a lot of challenges um with each like ethical um consideration when mm-hmm. you're talking about justice and healthcare yeah um so for every point that we mentioned before there is like a reason why it's difficult yeah um so for like for example like resource allocation um yeah. there are very limited resources um so like medical facilities staff funds mm-hmm. Um, etc yeah. like it is really difficult to, to decide who deserves what because yeah. it's not a choice that you would want to make it's very subjective exactly as well. mm-hmm. so um you need um like co- collaboration, collaboration with your yeah. um, peers etc um uh-huh. but yeah yeah so ethical consideration in general so distributive justice involves fair allocation of resources as Priyanka said uh, so we need to consider factors like need, contribution and merit. So in terms of healthcare disparities, challenges arise such as disparities in healthcare access specifically and outcomes based on the socioeconomic status of or race, ethnicity and geographic location. So achieving justice would require addressing these disparities and promoting equal access to healthcare services as a whole for everyone. Yeah and another challenge would be um, autonomy and informed consent so you need to ensure that your patients have adequate information in order to make informed decisions about their care Um, and this can be challenging especially in cases of complex medical information Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you would need to respect patient autonomy and provide clear, understandable information um, that's crucial to uphold justice in healthcare decision-making. Yeah. Um, And then with healthcare rationing, 
it's kind of similar to um, resource allocation, mm-hmm. um, but there are situation, situations where demand for healthcare exceeds available resources. Um, so an example of this was during mm-hmm. like peak COVID, because yeah. um, it was so new and there were such limited resources because um, scientists hadn't... PPE yeah. wise, yeah, exactly. definitely. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. um, it was really difficult to mm. decide who like deserves to get treatment so the ethical consideration would be that um the principles of distributive justice and fairness um guide decision decisions on how to allocate these resources um so there's not really a right or wrong answer there yeah it's just and it's um, very well fiscally driven would be a cold way of putting yeah, exactly. it but it's definitely a more analytical side to medicine no, as it is yeah. to the more mm-hmm. compassionate side and it's definitely worth considering on case-to-case basis mm, yeah but yeah um cultural competence can also come into play so diverse patient populations uh, may have different cultural beliefs naturally uh, practices and preferences that impact healthcare delivery so cultural competency is definitely sorry an essential to respect individual values beliefs and preferences so promoting justice by recognizing uh, different cultural mm-hmm. identities yeah. and differences within those uh, which will affect care which i feel like we've been addressing more mm-hmm. recently yeah mm-hmm. yeah um, another challenge would be global health inequities. So disparities in healthcare exist not only within countries but also between countries, posing challenges in addressing global health issues. So to achieve global health justice, um, it would involve collaborative efforts such as resource sharing and also addressing the root causes of global health disparities. I mean, like, conflicts mm-hmm. comes into that. Definitely. So, like, Ukraine and Russia mm-hmm. and Palestine, etc. So, mm-hmm. um, with things like that, because of the um, conditions that countries are in at the minute, mm-hmm. yeah. um, like, there needs to be a lot of collaboration between Definitely. nations to ensure that like every single person gets the care that they need yeah that is not happening as effectively as it should and it can be addressed yeah and it should be addressed but um like i also do think Uh that it is a really hard decision Mm -hmm. to like decide what to keep and what to um donate yeah um but yeah so research ethics so this would i mean promote this would in involve, involve. involve. <laughs> oh god um so this would involve challenges such as conducting research involving human subjects um because it would require careful consideration definitely of potential risks benefits and ensuring that vulnerable populations are not exploited mm-hmm. because at the end of the day we're talking about human life here with consciousness and basically should be respected um above all forms of scientific advancement i would say (laughs) so the ethical consideration that would have to be made here in terms of upholding justice would involve obtaining informed consent as we touched on earlier minimizing harm and ensuring that the benefits of the research are distributed fairly as a result of the test subjects input yeah 
And um, another challenge would be the emerging technologies. So the rapid advancement of technologies like AI and um, genomics raises ethical concerns regarding privacy, consent and equitable access to cutting edge treatments. So to ensure justice is involved in addressing the potential for technology, um, you need to exacerbate existing disparities and safeguard against discrimination in the use of healthcare innovations. Mm-hmm. Um, the next bit is about pandemic response. We have already kind of talked about it. Yeah. Um, but just basically, we need to ensure that um, scarce resources um, are allocated like mm-hmm. properly and to make sure that everyone gets what they need, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot easier said than done, I might yeah, add. Um, but... I think it's just something that I mean obviously we don't want to be in a situation where we need um to have a pandemic response because it was a really tough time for everyone yeah um but I think that there should be a bit more planning in yeah. done into like mm-hmm. what we would do in the event of something like this happening mm-hmm. again to ensure yeah. that we don't have the same issues that and we had arguably there was a sort of lack oh, yeah, surrounding absolutely. it when it first hit we weren't as prepared as we no. could have been i think because there's no way to predict something like no. this happening and you wouldn't hope for yeah. it to happen so. like it wouldn't be something that like what three four years ago yeah. i would never have guessed that no. this like something <laughs> like this would have happened but um i just think that mm. we should consider um, all possibilities yeah exactly mm. uh yeah and a final challenge <laughs> is the cost of healthcare services and insurance, which can create barriers to access for some individuals. So ensuring affordability and exploring models that minimise financial barriers are essential for promoting justice in healthcare. Right, so our last part of this podcast is going to be on confidentiality, though we did note it in autonomy. We feel the need to stress the important of importance sorry of patient confidentiality in healthcare ethics so confidentiality is central to the development of trust between doctors and patients which is fundamental to providing care uh, so patients must be able to expect that their information about their health is kept confidential unless there is a compelling reason that it should not be so in terms of discussing how healthcare professionals would maintain said confidentiality, mm-hmm. uh, would you guys want to elaborate? Um, yeah, so the first one is um, quite a big one, actually, for mm-hmm. um, like making sure that all hospitals and just healthcare providers in general have yeah. really, really secure record-keeping systems. So... Um, the, uh, like now because of um technological advancements it is all online yeah um which is great because um it's harder to access if you just walk into an office like yeah. previously it would be filed away in cabinets <laughs> which you could access yeah, yeah. if you tried hard enough mm-hmm. um but one thing with um keeping it online is that um like there is a chance that everything could get wiped Leaked. Or, yeah, yeah, leaked, hacked, yeah. All of those. Even though you do have encryption passwords in place. I mean, it's not always going to be 100% foolproof, is it? But um, this is Mm -hmm. a lot better than what we had now. Um, Mm -hmm. And then kind of following on from that, healthcare professionals are restricted in what they can access. So they 
um, can only get to the information that they absolutely 100% need. Mm-hmm. So they don't have access to every single person in a hospital. They just have access to their specific patients mm-hmm. in, in their specific like ward, if it's like OBGYN or something yeah. like that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So another thing is confidential communication. So when discussing patient information, healthcare professionals take precautions to ensure confidentiality. So this could include speaking in private areas like a quieter room, mm-hmm. um, using secure communication channels and avoiding discussions in public spaces where others might overhear sensitive information. Um, and healthcare providers obtain informed consent from patients before sharing that information with third parties such as other healthcare providers, their family members or researchers and patients are informed about the purpose of sharing that information and have the right to specify who can access their records. Yeah, so also this would be touched on in training and education, so in med school. Uh, So healthcare professionals will undergo training on the importance of confidentiality and the proper handling of patient information. Mm -hmm. So this education will definitely emphasise the legal and ethical obligations associated with maintaining confidentiality and the potential consequences of breaches. So, worst case scenario, for example, getting strikes off of the medical record. Uh, So, legal and ethical guidelines would include healthcare professionals adhering to uh, guidelines that maintain the protection of patient confidentiality and make it mandatory, obviously. So, these guidelines are established at both national and international levels and violation will definitely result in disciplinary actions and potential legal consequences. Um, So, the next one is anonymous reporting. Um, So, in certain situations, healthcare professionals might implement anonymous reporting uh, systems for their sensitive issues. Not their sensitive issues, just general (laughs) sensitive issues. Um, This allows individuals to report concerns without revealing their identity, which promotes a culture of openness while still protecting confidentiality. I think this one's quite interesting because, Mm. um, like, obviously, patient confidentiality means that if a patient makes a complaint about a doctor, it is very difficult for that doctor to... Um, yeah. kind of rebuke what they've said mm-hmm. because they can't speak about what happened in mm. the like appointment or interaction or whatever yeah. um, due to confidentiality so I think that mm. that could be a kind of double-edged sword yeah. in a way mm-hmm. but I think that most people wouldn't abuse that um, yeah. like the system hopefully, not. Uh, hopefully yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah in terms of anonymous reporting I don't know if you guys have seen or watched the This Is Going To Her. Oh, love oh, it. Oh, yeah. Isn't there a point where he yeah. gets reported by another, by, an, uh, by another uh, like, no. practitioner? Yeah. yeah. I forget what he did, though. But. Um, what he did was uh-huh. he... Um, so there was a patient that he had mm. that was um, pregnant. She was having a C-section. Yeah. And he was the... Um, yeah, yeah, he was the surgeon. Uh-huh. Um, he was um, working with a um, like another doctor mm-hmm. who was under his training, but she was um, like of Indian descent, I believe. Yeah, and um, uh... she the patient um, was 
quite racist yeah. towards that um like yeah trainee uh-huh. doctor and she made like a lot of hurtful remarks etc mm-hmm. um so um the doctor adam k yeah. um he like so she had like a dolphin tattoo on her stomach and he sewed it up yeah, so it looked it really bad yeah yeah uh-huh. um and he did that intentionally right. which is assault technically yeah um whether you agree um mm-hmm. that what he did was like mm-hmm. good because he like she was being racist etc uh-huh. it is still illegal yeah um and it is wrong and he should have been reported yeah it was quite right yeah um and it's a good example of how these can be used in exactly actual yeah. realistic contexts yeah, but if you haven't seen that show, it Definitely is brilliant. Or read the book. Yeah, do both. I did both. Yeah, do both. It was great. And the Christmas edition. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> right, so back on track, I guess. Yeah, um, <laughs> bit tangent. Another thing is secure electronic communication. So healthcare providers use secure um, and encrypted methods for electronic communication, such as emails, messaging systems, and telehealth platforms. So these technologies help ensure that patient information is transmitted safely and remains completely confidential. And they also have to follow professional codes of conduct. So the healthcare professionals adhere to their codes of conduct and ethics that emphasise the importance of confidentiality. Mm -hmm. And these codes guide their behaviour and decision making in ways that prioritise patient privacy. And I think you can read these documents mm-hmm. if you go yeah. on the GMC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it's called Good Medical Practice. That sounds right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and finally, um, they also do regular audits and monitoring. So healthcare organisations conduct regular audits and monitoring of access to patient information to detect and prevent unauthorised access. Mm-hmm. And these audits help identify and address any potential breaches. So, in summary, the four pillars of medical ethics are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice. Yes. And I feel like we've all gained a bit more insight on what these can mean in the healthcare profession and surrounding, and hopefully they will help you with your interviews or anything that you might have to write about surrounding these. Okay, guys. Oh, God. Medical joke time. Uh (sighs) Uh-huh. What did the doctor say to the invisible man? What did the doctor say? Terribly sorry, sir. I can't see you right now. (laughs) Oh my god. Do you not think I'm funny? (laughs) God. (laughs) Um, You couldn't see that, but that was a really, really slow high five. Really awkward high five. Anyway. You could see or hear that, actually. No, that's true. But just know it happened. Yeah, for the record. Yeah. yeah. So that's all the time we have for today. Yeah, so jokes aside, <laughs> hopefully you enjoyed our episode and we hope that you tune into our next one. So see you then next time on Scrubbed In. In.